welcome you to week one of a brand new series, a brand new four-week series that we are calling Confidence. We're spending all four of these weeks looking at what Jesus had to say in John chapter 14. And uh, before I get any further, let me kind of explain why we've landed on this word, confidence. Uh, so the, the hardest call that I ran um, in my time as a firefighter was not a fire, uh, and it was not a medical call. It was actually an MVC, which stands for a motor vehicle collision. It was out on uh, 100 West. I think it was about a year and a half into uh, my career. And um, really tough call, really sad, and uh, it had a... Um, pretty profound impact on me um, for a while afterwards that, of course, you know, I didn't recognize at first. Um, and I'm not going to get into the details of that call here because I think it would be uh, just inappropriate right now. Um, but on this call, uh, it was a big enough deal that a number of police officers showed up, and one of them happened to be my cousin, Mike, who... Um, Mike is still a police officer now, but even then, he was a seasoned veteran. He had run more than his fair share of uh, really tough calls, and he saw me going to work on that call. Uh, He knew that I was new to that line of work and certainly had never had an experience like that before, and so he texted me a prayer that he was praying over me during that call. This is over 10 years ago now. I still remember what he said, and I actually, um, at, at a number of times throughout my life since then, whenever I'm dealing with something that feels really overwhelming and the outcome's uncertain, I'll just borrow his words that he prayed over me then and I'll, I'll just pray it over myself. And what he prayed for for me was strength and confidence because that's what you need uh, when you're dealing with something that feels incredibly overwhelming and uh, frankly scary uh, and the outcome is, is uncertain. You need strength, you need confidence. And the reason that I begin this series with that story is because that's exactly what Jesus' words in John chapter 14 are designed to give us. John 14 itself sits in uh, the context of a greater, you could call it a speech that Jesus gave. It's sometimes known as the upper room discourse. It's the longest block of teaching we have from Jesus. And it's what he gave to his disciples uh, literally just hours before he went to the cross. And what it is when you really boil it down to its core, it's a training session. And it's meant to do what any good training session is meant to do, which is to give people what they need in order to face everything that lay ahead of them. And what Jesus' words are designed to give us, first and foremost, uh, is confidence. And so when you break down John chapter 14, what you'll find is that there are really four things that Jesus is pointing us to as sources of our confidence that really what he, the point of it is to try to get us to root our confidence in these four things. And we're going to take this series uh, looking each week at one of these four things. And I just, I'll just i say this before I, I read the text. The more that I thought about it, I really don't believe that the world is just divided into people who are confident and people who are, are not, or people who have confidence and, and people who don't. Like it's a great personality trait that you're either lucky enough to be born with or unfortunately you just don't have any. I think everybody on planet Earth, everybody in humanity has uh, Confidence. It's just a question of what your confidence in. Your confidence is either in something that's reliable, uh, something that will um, cause you to be able to be unshaken through the, the most difficult, overwhelming, and scary times of life, or your confidence is in something that's eventually going to uh, leave you feeling um, not confident at all. 
And so the, really the goal of Jesus' words here all through this chapter that we're going to spend the next several weeks in, and therefore the goal of this series is to get us to put our confidence in something that will give us the strength and the confidence that we need to face everything that lay ahead of us in this life. Uh, so today we're going to look at the first thing that Jesus is trying to get us to root our confidence in, and that is confidence in hope. Confidence in the hope that is afforded to us by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. I'm going to read it to you. It's in John chapter 14, and I just want to read verses 1 to 3. Jesus said, Your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away... And prepare a place for you, I'll come back and receive you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. This is God's word. Uh, And these words are all about hope. And so, what I want to do during our time together is just uh, sit in this passage and ask three questions of it. First off, what is the hope that Jesus is offering us? Number two, uh, what makes it such a good hope? And then, number three, How can this hope be ours? So first and foremost, the question is, what exactly is the hope that Jesus is offering us? And the answer when you zoom out from this text is crystal clear. Uh, What Jesus is offering you and I is a place. That's the whole core of the promise in these verses that he is preparing. He's promised to prepare a place for you. Uh, So what I'd like to do is just take a few moments here and try to get into the lives of the people that Jesus made this promise to. The disciples in John chapter 14 are deeply troubled. The reason that Jesus begins this entire section with the command, don't let your hearts be troubled, is because that's exactly what the disciples were were doing. They were allowing themselves to be troubled, and they had a lot of good reason to be troubled at this point in their lives. Because you have to remember, these men had walked away from everything. They'd thrown in, they'd gone all, all in on Jesus, Uh, banking on the fact that Jesus was going to be a political Messiah, he's going to overthrow Rome, he's going to win over the hearts and unite God's people, and he's going to sit them into positions of leadership uh, as his disciples, his kind of 12 lieutenants, over this new kingdom that he's coming to usher in. And at this point in Jesus' career, if you want to call it that, um, that hasn't happened, and it doesn't look like it's ever going to happen. As a matter of fact, at this point in John 14, Jesus has basically lost all of his social capital, from the the Jewish religious leaders to Rome that's now kind of side-eyeing him with this air of suspicion, Uh, it's not looking good for anybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus. So they have bet everything on Jesus, and as of this moment, they have nothing to show for it, but it's actually even worse than that for them, because just a few verses before this, late in chapter 13, Jesus looked at his disciples, and he said, I'm leaving you, and you can't follow me where I'm going. So I don't think it's real difficult to hop into their minds because I think you and I would be thinking the same thing that they must have been thinking then. They're thinking, hang on a second, I've left everything behind to follow you and you're telling me that you're leaving me. So these men are deeply, deeply troubled. And of course, although they had no idea, uh, what lay just ahead of them was far worse than any of them could imagine. History tells us that 11 of the 12 disciples died these unbelievably inhumane deaths. They were ripped apart by wild animals. They were impaled, burned alive. They were crucified, sometimes upside down. Uh, Jesus knew that this lay ahead of of everyone here. And so his, his command to begin this entire section is simply, don't let your heart be troubled. 
And what he's doing immediately after that is he's offering them resources that would allow them to live an untroubled life. And the very first resource that Jesus offers people in a position like this is a place. So here's how my mind works. Jesus knows absolutely everything about how we're designed because he did the designing. That means that Jesus knows what those disciples and what you and I need infinitely better than our understanding of what we need. And so if, if the very first thing that Jesus is offering people who are deeply troubled in their present and, and have a future that's much darker than what they're going through right now, if the very first thing Jesus is offering people in that position is a place, then that tells me that that must be something that the human heart needs on a, on a really deep, fundamental level, and it is. In his book, The Weight of Glory, uh, right at the beginning, C.S. Lewis elaborates on, it's kind of a difficult thing to describe, he does a great job with it, and I'm not going to read you the entire quote because it's pretty lengthy, but what he does at the very beginning of that book is he elaborates on this feeling uh, that, that all human beings have, that he, he, he basically calls it a homesickness that we experience throughout this life for a place that we've never actually been to. Elaborating on this, this feeling, he calls it, this is his words, the scent of a flower we've not found, the echo of a tune we've not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. He's basically talking about how all throughout this life we sometimes momentarily experience something that just awakens this desire for this home that we've never been to, um, but it never quite scratches the itch. And like he says, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this, Every once in a while, we had a chance to experience something in this life that sort of touches on that desire and maybe temporarily fulfills that desire in a, in a very imperfect way. Uh, and for me, I experienced something like that a couple of years ago at a conference in Atlanta. I remember it was when we, when we first hired Dave Brower, I heard about this small groups conference at this really big church, real well-known church down south. And it was only a two-day thing, and, and so um, me and Dave, David and I flew down there and checked it out. And uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, got a lot of enthusiasm in the crowd today. Um, we, uh, we got there, and I was immediately starstruck. Uh, this is not an exaggeration. It, it, I, think, I think the church had seven campuses, and we were at the, the, the main one. And it's, it's not an exaggeration to say this campus was big enough to be a mall. And, um, you know, content-wise, production-wise, it was amazing. They had these main stage talks with, with speakers that write books that fly off the shelves. And then in between the main stage sessions, they had these breakout groups with really, no, you know, knowledgeable leaders. And they did live Q&As, and, and it was great. But as, as, as great as the production was, as great as the content was, it wasn't the production or the content that really impacted me about my time there. So about two days before uh, we hopped on the plane, someone on behalf of this church emailed me, and uh, it was one of those, um, you know, you've been hand-selected of all the people that signed up for this, you know, special whatever, and I roll my eyes every time I see something like that, and my first thought was, everybody who's going to this conference gets this email. This is just an auto-generated, big church propaganda kind of nonsense thing, and so I responded to it, and I thought that would be the end of it, but to my surprise, I was wrong. I'm always surprised when I'm wrong, actually. So I, I, I responded to this email, and, uh, and, and they immediately got back to me. And uh, whoever was on the other side of this screen was asking me all these questions about who I am and what I'm looking for, what makes me tick, and, and all that kind of stuff. I thought that was pretty cool. But then this, this guy, offered, he said, uh, if I didn't already have hotel reservations, he, he said I could crash in his basement during the conference, which 
At this point, I had no way of knowing that he was not a serial killer, so I didn't take him up on his offer. But what, what was meaningful to me was he also had no way of knowing that I was not a serial killer and still offered to put me up in his basement. So I said, uh, hard pass, thanks for the hospitality, and, and, and again, thought that would be the end of it. Uh, well, David and I got down there, and this guy found us. Apparently, he had called our church. He talked to Tara, our office administrator, and he, and he found us. So we got, you know, we got to have a face-to-face, and he gave David and I the royal treatment like you wouldn't believe. Just to give you an idea of how large this church was, their sanctuary had an east wing and, you're not going to believe this, a west wing. But wait, there's more. So all of the people from this conference sat, I think it was in the east wing, uh, but this gentleman found David and I, and he let us eat behind the scenes with the staff of the church where we had, you know, far superior food, which was nice. But on top of that, he also led us on a personal and guided tour to all of the kind of off-limits areas of the conference that nobody else got to go to. And when I, and when I say, you know, a personal guided tour, I mean it was literally just the three of us. And he had to, you know, bust out his key card and show us, you know, the kids' ministry and all these places that nobody else at the conference got to go to. He showed us all these things and uh, just explained, you know, answered all my questions. Here's how we do things. Helped me brainstorm ideas about how we could kind of take these ideas and bring them to life here. And so at the end of the conference, uh, this was really neat. Uh, this guy, as well as every other volunteer that got the, the uh, event off the ground, and there was over 100, um, they, they lined the hall that you had to walk through before you got to the exit. And so there was over 100 volunteers, and they were all clapping for us, and they were all cheering for us as we walked out the doors to go to the airport and back to our ministry context. And I was, I, I, it was tough for me to not get emotional just walking through that, knowing that, like, man, I don't even know these people, but they're my brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're pulling for me, and it just meant a lot. And I found this guy who had given us the royal treatment in this sea of people. I gave him a hug. I thanked him for the hospitality. And, and you know, we, we got out of there and we went back to real life. At this point, I think I've been to about a dozen different, you know, church leadership conferences. And I can say they're pretty much all the same. Um, but that one stands out like a sore thumb. To this day, I hadn't experienced anything like that prior to that. And I still haven't experienced anything like that to this day. Uh, Maya Angelou has this famous quote. She said, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And uh, I think she's a thousand percent correct because, you know, here I am today several years removed from that, and I don't remember anything that was said at that conference. I mean, I, I don't think I could give you a full sentence of anything that anybody said but what I do remember, and remember vividly, is how the kindness of one staff member made me feel. And if I had to condense that feeling, yeah, he made me feel like I had value. He made me feel like I mattered. But above everything else, the thing that I take from that conference is, is uh, he made me feel like I belong. And you hear me say this all the time. The Bible says that we're, we're made by a, um, a relational God. We're made in the image of a relational God. Uh, you know, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is we serve... Um, we serve one God who's eternally existing in three separate yet equal persons. So he's a triune God that's relational in his core. And so being made in his image means we're relational creatures that are designed to need relationship. And what that means is that there's just something about being human, that when we are made to feel like we belong, when people make us feel like we belong, when we feel like we belong, it's just a, it's a cathartic thing, it's a healing thing, uh, it's a profound thing. 
And of course, the opposite of that is also true. I mean, over the last 10 years as a pastor meeting with people one-on-one, I've talked to people who have, you know, opened up about feeling like they didn't feel like they belonged in the childhood home that they grew up in. And there's been tons of research that's come out just really in the last several decades about how devastating that is and how uh, that's, that's not something that, you know, the day you move out that stops bothering you. I mean, that can be a wound that you carry with you for the rest of your life. And in saying that, I know that there's people listening to me right now, you felt like that in the home you grew up in. Or maybe you felt like that uh, in school, or maybe you feel like that in your line of work, or maybe you felt like that in relationships that you were in, or maybe even relationships that you're still in. And if you know what that's like to feel like you don't belong, uh, you know how difficult it is to go through life carrying that burden around. And if that's you, I mean, if that hits home with you, I, I want to say something to you that might surprise you. The Bible actually says the reason that you feel like that so often in your life, the reason that you feel like you don't belong is because you don't belong. This is what the author of Hebrews straightforwardly says in Hebrews 13, 14, for this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. And what that means essentially is even if you had a great childhood, Uh, Even if you are in just amazingly healthy relationships, even if you love your job and you, you know, the stars have aligned, you got a great boss, you got a great team, even if your life is filled with really amazing experiences, what we all eventually discover is that those experiences fade. They don't last. They're temporary. They never get at this deep longing that we have. And eventually we discover that this home that we're always looking for and that we try so hard to build in this life, it's only ever just out of reach. It's exactly what Lewis is saying when he says that we're born with this certain homesickness for this place that we just can't seem to find. And the reason I say all of that is to say that what Jesus is promising you here is that place. That's what this promise is fundamentally about. Now, the more that I sat on these words just follow me here, the more meaningful it was to me that Jesus does not just say, I'm going to take you to the Father's house. You know, I know that life is hard. Don't be troubled because I'm going to take you to the Father's house after this. And please don't misunderstand me. If that's all Jesus promised, it'd still be amazing. I mean, the Father's house, that's got to be breathtaking and beautiful and all those kinds of things. But I'll tell you, If all Jesus said here was, I'm going to take you to the Father's house, what that means is that when you got there, you would eventually discover that you're standing in a place that you don't belong because how could somebody like us stand in the presence of someone like that? But Jesus doesn't just say here, I'm going to take you to the Father's house. He says, I'm preparing a place for you there. What that means, and I hope this hits you as hard as it should, is that the miracle of heaven is that when you stand at the footstep of the Father's home, you're going to discover that Jesus Christ has somehow found a way to turn the Father's home into your home. It means when you get there, you're going to discover that there is a place that has been specifically designed for you by someone who knows everything about you and could not wait for your arrival. And when you get there, when you arrive in that place, you'll know this is what I've been looking for all my life but have never quite been able to find. This is the place where I fully, finally, totally, and eternally belong. That's what Jesus is promising here. That's the hope that he promises. So the next question that I have here, and I I sort of touched on it in this first idea, but we're going to get a little bit deeper now. If that's the hope that Jesus offers, 
let's ask the question, what exactly makes this hope so good? And if I could state that question differently, uh, here's the question I'm going to try to answer for you today. I've never even tried to touch on this before, but let's ask the question, what makes heaven, heaven? I want to offer you three answers to that question. Obviously, this is the kind of topic we could spend the rest of our lives on and barely scratch the surface, but I'm going to offer you three answers to that question. The first answer is found uh, in verse 3, where Jesus says, If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. So the first reason that heaven is heaven, I don't think this is going to surprise anybody, is because Jesus is there. The first thing that makes heaven heaven is the presence of Jesus, but in saying that, that answer by itself is actually a little bit incomplete, and the reason I say that is because the the Bible is crystal clear that the moment you give your life to Jesus, the presence of Jesus goes with you from that moment for the rest of your life. I mean, it's the Holy Spirit of God mediates the presence of Jesus Christ into your life such that the New Testament can actually say you are a temple of a, a walking, talking, living, breathing container of the presence of God. So when you say, you know, heaven is heaven because of the presence of Jesus, well, your life is filled with the presence of Jesus right now, but you're certainly not in heaven. So what do you do with this idea? What exactly does this mean that he's going to be there and we're going to be with him? To answer that question, let me skip ahead three chapters to John chapter 17. John 17 is is, uh, actually a prayer that Jesus prays directly after this training session called the Upper Room Discourse. And in verse 24... While he's praying, Jesus makes a statement about what heaven is going to be like that I don't think we spend nearly enough time thinking about. John 17, 24, Jesus said, Father, I desire those you have given me to be with me where I am. Here's what will happen, Jesus said. Then they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. So there's at least two things Jesus is saying here. First off, Jesus is saying the source of his glory, the essence of his glory, Jesus' glory is is intricately bound up in this beginningless love that the Father has always had for him and is always pouring out on him. That's what Jesus is saying. But the other thing he's saying here is that when you arrive in this place that he has promised to prepare for you, Jesus says, you will witness something that no human being has ever witnessed, which is that glory, his glory, in its purest form. Now, Paul the Apostle uh, hints at this idea at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. You've probably heard this before, where he says, now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then we're going to see face to face. He says, then we're going to see clearly. And in Paul's day, obviously, mirrors were not like the mirrors that we have now. In Paul's day, you had bronze that you would just polish until you could vaguely make out what you sort of look like. You could get about the shape of your head and not a whole lot else. Paul's saying, that's how we see the glory of Jesus now. That's how we understand the glory of Jesus now. But one day, it's going to be perfectly clear to us. That's exactly what Jesus is saying is going to happen in heaven. So first and foremost, what makes heaven is heaven Uh, What makes heaven heaven is, yeah, it's the presence of Jesus, but it's not just the presence of Jesus. It's the perfect revelation of Jesus. You're going to see him as he is forever. Now, let me let you into my life. And maybe this is going to sound bad coming from a pastor, but I'm just being perfectly honest here. Many times throughout my life, I've tried to picture what heaven is going to be like. And every single time, I let myself down. Because what my frail human mind does not have the ability to do, I can't picture something that I could see 
for a billion years and not get tired of. And so, you know, you tell people, well, you're going to see the glory of Jesus forever. That's what heaven's going to be like. And I think most people's mind goes to this place of, okay, well, you know, even if it's really great, we're talking about an infinite number of trillion years here. At some point, that's got to get boring. What else is heaven like? And I'll just, to speak to that idea, if that's where your mind goes, let me just offer you this as as a thought experiment. And I actually, I, if you follow me on Instagram, you know I posted a little survey this week. Every once in a while, I'm sure this has happened to you, it's happened to me, but every once in a while in this life, you get the chance, and you got to really pay attention when it happens, but every once in a while, you get the chance to see something that's so beautiful it moves you. It, it has an effect on you, a, a, a quantifiable, veritable, measurable effect Uh, This week on Instagram, kind of building off this idea, I just wanted to hear from people. So I asked the question, what is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen and what what effect did it have on you? And it was amazing to hear all the responses. People talked about seeing the sunset on the cliffs of San Diego. They talked about seeing waterfalls. They talked about seeing videos of soldiers being reunited with their children. They talked about the birth of their own children or the birth of their nieces and nephews. And, and with every one of those answers, they talked about, you know, the profound effect that it had on them. That from that, you know, from that moment on, they, they viewed God creations differ- God's creation differently. From that moment on, you know, they knew that they would die for their kids. And, and, and so I'm sure that you've had an experience, if we went around the room, that, that at least in a temporary sense, it moves you. It inspires you. It brought you to tears. It lifts you. It gives you a different perspective. It fills you with hope. And so building off of that idea, just understand what, this, what Scripture is, is telling us is that the beauty of Jesus is so incomparable It's so beyond our understanding that when you see it for what it is, it's not just going to move you. It's not just going to inspire you. It's not just going to bring tears to your eyes. It's not just going to temporarily lift you. It's going to transform you forever. The beauty of Jesus is so potent that it has the power to permanently transform uh, those who are privileged to behold it. This is exactly what we read in 1 John 3, verse 2, which says... Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, here's why, because we will see him as he is. John is saying that the experience of seeing God face to face is so uh, mind-blowingly powerful that when you can finally see him, His beauty, his glory, and his perfection will make you beautifully, gloriously perfect yourself. Now, before I move on from this idea, let me just offer this uh, as a word of advice. I would not listen too carefully to anybody who tries to explain in detail what our glorified bodies or our glorified selves are going to be like. Because you get weird when you try to define that any more than John just did. And even according to the word of God here, John simply says it hasn't been revealed. But I'd ask you to think about this. Consider for a moment, I know this is kind of intellectual, but just follow me. Consider for a moment the difference between you and an insect. Your ability to feel, uh, to either feel grief uh, or to feel joy your ability to experience things like satisfaction and fulfillment, your ability to um, 
form deep and meaningful relationships with other people, the human capacity to experience reality itself, it's just of a higher, it's on a higher plane than that of an insect, and it could never be explained to an insect, but I don't feel bad for the insects because they, they have no idea what they're actually missing. Right, with that in mind, I just, just try to consider this. I don't know what senses we're going to have then that we don't even have now. I don't know what, what ability to feel we're going to have then that we don't have now, and I don't know what capacity we're going to have just to experience reality then that, that isn't even on our radar now, that could not possibly be explained to us now, but I know this. The difference between who you are right now and who you will be when you are able to see the unfiltered glory of Jesus Christ, the difference between this version of you and that version of you is infinitely greater than the, the distance between who you are right now, and an insect. That's why all, it's, it's almost like I can hear John saying, I would love to be able to put it into words. I'd love to be able to describe it to you, but there is no language that can grasp it. It simply has not been revealed. So the answer to our question, what makes heaven heaven, and this is kind of a two-part answer, first off, is that there will be, number one, the perfect revelation of Jesus, and that revelation will perfectly transform you. Now, I could stop there, but according to Jesus' own words here and what we see elsewhere in Scripture, that's not it. So let me say something that might sound kind of confusing, but hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll clean this up by the end of the point. Heaven couldn't be heaven without Jesus. It just it wouldn't be heaven by definition without the presence of Jesus. However, Jesus is not the only thing that makes heaven heaven. And in our hyper-individualistic modern culture, one thing that we have to constantly be mindful of and work against is our tendency to read the promises of Scripture, specifically the promises of Jesus, through this individualistic lens that we're, we're almost indoctrinated by in our culture. Here's what I mean. Heaven is not going to be you playing one-on-one -on -one with Jesus forever because, as, as wild as this might sound, it wouldn't be heaven if that's all it was. If, if all it was was you, by yourself, personally experiencing Jesus, that would not be heaven. And if that sounds like a crazy thing to say, I can point back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Before sin had entered the world, when Adam was there and he had a perfect relationship with God, completely unencumbered and unhindered by the presence of sin, even then God looked at Adam and said, this is not good for you. This is a violation of my design for you. It's not good for you to be alone. And so what Jesus is saying here. Uh, is that you will experience heaven alongside countless other people. That's what Jesus means when he says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. This means that you're going to experience everything that we're talking about here alongside countless other people who are experiencing the same thing forever. Here's why this is so important. Here's why. If you have ever... If anything in this life has ever brought you any measure of joy, and man, I hope that everybody can at least think of something, whether that is a book that you've read, a song you've heard, a movie you watched, an experience you had, a meal that you cooked, something that you built, whatever it is, if anything in this life has ever legitimately elicited passion and interest and joy from you, then I don't have to know you to know that you have felt an almost uncontrollable urge to share that joy with someone else. All right, let me offer you three real-life case studies and just ask you to consider what is this showing us about humanity, all right? Just this week, my wife walked in the front door, and she started telling me about this uh, country song. 
disclaimer, we're not really country music people, but this is a great song. You've, maybe you've heard it. It's called By Dirt. My wife walks in the door, and she's telling me about this song that's all about you know, the, the, the uh, things that are most important in life. And as she's telling me about the song, she begins to get emotional. Let, let, me, let me ask you the question, why was it not enough for her to be moved by that song personally, keep it to herself? Why did she feel the compulsion to share that with someone else? Here's another example. Katie and I went on vacation with two of our best friends, John and Mary. While we were on vacation, Mary was reading a book. Uh, and every time she came across something in her book that captured her attention, that meant something to her, uh, she got up and she walked over to her husband and she read it to him. I saw her do this probably at least a dozen times. And this week while I was putting this together, I texted her and said, why did you do that? And she said, because it made me happy, it was meaningful to me, and I wanted to share that with someone else. Again, let me ask you the question, why? Why not just be personally interested in a book that you read? Third example, and last, this week, kind of a watershed moment for my home, my six-year-old daughter cleaned her room for what is, I think, the first time in her life, and she crushed it. It was amazing. Disappeared, I didn't know where she went off to, and then she came downstairs, and she, I mean, you'd have thought, you know, she just built a spaceship or something. She says, Dad, stand up and close your eyes. And so she's bumping me into the fridge and up the steps and all this kind of nonsense. And she's like, stop. She made me stop halfway up the steps. She goes upstairs, does the triple check, you know, the, the once over kind of thing, opens the door, walks me in and, and says, all right, open them. And she watches me survey the room and she's just locked on to my face. She wanted to see, you know, what I thought of this. Again, why is it not enough for a six-year-old to just enjoy a clean room? Why is it that she had to share that with somebody else? Here's why. Here's where I'm going with all this. If I've completely lost you, I'd ask you, just tune in for this one statement, and if you remember nothing else from this teaching, please remember this one thing. Here's how you explain all of that and countless other examples I could pull out of thin air. Here it is. God has designed the world such that the joy that you derive from an object cannot be complete until it's shared. It's simply the way, it's not only the way that God has designed the world, it's the way that God has designed you, and it's the way that God has designed joy that when you are genuinely passionate about something, genuinely captivated by something, genuinely finding joy in something, that that joy only gets greater, that joy only gets amplified when it is shared with someone other than yourself. This is something that a gentleman by the name of Christopher McCandless discovered at the end of his life. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Into the Wild, but it's a true story of a 19-year-old guy named Christopher McCandless. He was born to wealthy parents. He graduated Emory University, brilliant student, prolific athlete. He had a lucrative future ahead of him. But to everyone's surprise, he gave all of his life savings away to charity, and he ran away without telling anybody, went completely off the grid to live by himself in the Alaskan wilderness. And he made it there. And he lived out there by himself, and he died out there by himself. And just before he died, he wrote a message And people found it when they discovered his body. And this is all the message said. Happiness is only real when it is shared. That's somebody experiencing their design the hard way at the end of their life. Now, now, why why am I bothering walking you through all of that? Here's... All I'm trying to do is capture your imagination today. In light of everything that I just said, would you please just consider this? If, as Jesus says, if heaven is filled with countless people who were all experiencing the infinite beauty and glory and perfection of Jesus, 
And they're all being transformed by the infinite beauty and glory and perfection of Jesus. And they're all reflecting the infinite beauty and glory and perfection of Jesus and sharing that with one another on into eternity. Then here's what you have in heaven. Heaven is this, it's an infinite prism of joy that will constantly be reflected and rebounded and only grow greater and greater on and on into eternity. That's why it's entirely appropriate to say that every moment of your existence in heaven will be the greatest moment of your existence. I was just reading this morning in in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, at the very end of the Bible, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, when God fixes everything that we broke, there's this amazing statement by God where he says, I am making all things new. That's talking about a, a state of reality that you've never experienced. That's talking about perpetual newness. What that means is that in heaven... A billion years into your time there, it will still be exactly as new, exactly as fresh, exactly as rapturous, exactly as joy-inducing as your very first moment was there, and it's going to be like that for all eternity. So let me circle back the, the answer to our question, what makes heaven heaven? I'll give you at least three answers to that question. Number one, there will be there the perfect revelation of Jesus that will, number two, perfectly transform you. And number three, you will have perfect relationships with countless other people who are experiencing the same exact thing on and on into eternity. And so what that means today is that if you are tired of feeling disconnected from God, if you are tired of feeling like you are so far from the person you know you should be, and if you are so tired of broken relationships that have been marred and stained and severed by the power of sin, then what Jesus is saying in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, is I have something for you. I have what you've been looking for your entire life. So is this a good hope? No, this is not a good hope. This is the best hope in the world because it comes from outside of this world. So how on earth do we get our hands on it? This is one of these, if you were raised in the church, I'm sure you can relate to this. This is one of those passages that, you know, you've, you've probably heard your entire life. And those passages are, there's a danger that comes with them that we just kind of mouse over them when we think we know all about them. And, and this week when I was putting this teaching together, I was really trying to study it with a new set of eyes and really comb through it. And, and twice here, Jesus uses this word prepare. Twice he tells us that he's going to prepare all of this for us. And so I decided to look up the Greek definition of that word just to see if there was any significance there. And not surprisingly, knowing Jesus, there is. Apparently, this word, prepare, uh, it it referred to a common custom of Oriental monarchs in the ancient world. The way that it worked back then is is when kings would travel long distances, they would send uh, a team of servants ahead of them to basically build a highway and literally prepare a way that is fit for the king. You, you actually see this out of the mouth of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 4. It says, A voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth, and the rough places a plain. And so the point is that the way that it worked in that day is that the servants would go, who knows how long it would take, just back-breaking labor where they would almost kill themselves trying to level the high places and fill the low places and make this highway fit for a king in the hope that if they worked hard enough and they did a good enough job and they prepared the way well enough, then they would be blessed with the, with the presence 
of the king. Jesus is using that same word here, except that in this kind of stunning uh, act of role reversal, Jesus is saying that he's the one who will do the, the, the preparing. And so in a, in a time and in a culture where every other king sends his servants ahead of him to do the preparing, what Jesus is saying to his servants, to his disciples, he's saying, it's not, not so in my kingdom. Jesus is saying, in, in my kingdom, you don't prepare the way for me, I prepare the way for you. And that really is the essence of the gospel. That in the midst of a world that calls us to work and to achieve and to succeed and to assert ourselves and build our resume and prepare our own way for the life that we want, you know, to work through, through our own effort and the sweat of our brow to satisfy ourselves and save ourselves with all of our salvation schemes to get our hands on what we think is going to make our life worth living. Christianity is calling us to do just the most counterintuitive thing imaginable, which is to completely let go of your own life and trust Jesus to handle all of that for you. Which, of course, raises the question, how on earth can I do something that counterintuitive to my fundamental nature? How can I trust Jesus like that? And the answer is found in looking at what Jesus did just after this to prepare the way for us. Because I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but just hours after this discourse, when Jesus went to the cross, what he was experiencing is the exact opposite of everything that he's promised us here. Scripture says Jesus was was crucified outside the gate, exiled, he was abandoned by the people that he came to save. Nobody stood by his side at the end and, we, and, and was forsaken even by his own father. If you've been at this church, you've probably heard me say this before, but if you survey every single prayer recorded by Jesus in the gospel accounts, you'll find that every one of them has at least one thing in common, that every single time Jesus prayed, he addressed God as father. There is exactly one exception to that in the life of Jesus. That one exception is when he hung on the cross and only said simply, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason Jesus didn't address God as his father then is because in that moment he couldn't. You you think about that in light of what we said earlier, that, that God the Father has been bestowing this love that knew no beginning on Jesus in an eternity past, but in that moment Jesus didn't, he didn't have that love anymore. We don't have a category for the kind of agony that that was. But in that moment Jesus was experiencing the homelessness and the exile that we deserve He was experiencing what it was like to have no place at all, no place with God, and he experienced all of that so that we would never have to know what that's like by grace through faith in his name. So I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to close today. There's just one final question I want to ask, and the question is, does this hope actually work? I mean, is this this just wishful thinking? Is this, uh, you know, what Nietzsche said, is this just the opiate of the masses, or does this hope actually work? And the answer unequivocally is yes, it works. And the reason I can say that with conviction is because we've seen this hope work. 2,000 years ago, it is a plain fact of history that the hope that Jesus offers in these verses is so potent that it transformed the lives not only of his first followers, but it eventually went on to transform the entire Roman Empire. Because Romans knew when they looked at Christians that whatever they were seeing, they'd never seen anything like this before. The Roman world knew how to come up with stoicism. They knew how to face suffering and hardship and loss and pain and death itself with a stiff upper lip. But when they saw the way Christians dealt with that, they knew they were looking at something that they had no category for. Because Christians look their own death in the eye and they sang hymns. They abounded in joy. They prayed for the people who were causing them the most pain, and they counted themselves blessed to be considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. It was a a community of people 
that lived like they were on top of the world, even when the world was literally on top of them. And onlookers in the Roman Empire saw that, and they said, how is this possible? And the answer is really easy. The answer is very simply, they understood the hope that Jesus offers in these verses that we looked at today. They knew that the home that they were made for, the home that they were looking for, the home that their hearts accidentally longed for was being prepared for them by a king who loved them enough to die for them and was powerful enough to rise for them. So they drove this hope into their hearts until it gave them the strength and the confidence they needed to face everything that lay ahead of them in this life. And so I just, I'll leave you with this question. What are you facing today? I know we're all facing something. And in my experience, it's probably worse than anybody around you actually knows. What are you facing today? And what are you likely to face all throughout this handful of breaths that we call life? The only question worth asking in light of this is, does your hope have the legs to carry you through everything you're going to face in this life? Because in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus is offering you a hope that can, by grace through faith in his name. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for hope. Thank you that no matter where we find ourselves, that we're not without hope. Thank you that even if we're as troubled as the disciples are, even if we have the darkness ahead of us that they had ahead of them, that you've gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us that is somehow going to be so amazing, so cathartic, so beautiful, so glorious, so perfect that it's going to make up for everything that we had to go through in order to get there. Thank you that in your kingdom you don't demand that we prepare the way for ourselves because you know we never could. Thank you that you have gone ahead of us to prepare the way. Please help us to see this hope that you're holding out for us with the eyes of faith this morning that would transform the way that we live and the way that we face everything that you call us to walk through, that we could represent you well for your glory and our joy. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.